Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Part of my mission in the world right now is to change people's perspective on that. Instead of thinking of O&M as this pain in the neck, overhead financial drain on my assets, we need to understand and honor that O&M is the thing that makes this investment work. These are your most important people because they are protecting your investment. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. All right, all right, Solar Warriors, welcome back to another episode of Suncast. I am so honored that you're joining us for another round with Amanda Bybee. And this is part two of the interview. If you missed the episode that we released earlier, which is part one, it was the preceding episode to this one. I would encourage you to go back and stage them so you list part one first. This is part two. I am really stoked to bring you this story of Amanda, and it became really clear to me after about an hour or so of she and I back and forth and recording the interview, and we had not even gotten into yet the origin story of Amicus Solar Cooperative (laughs) that we were going to have to do two parts. So here we are. This is part two. We'll keep this short and sweet. Again, uh, I really want to encourage if you are struggling through, uh, or even if you're thriving in this moment of lockdown that we're all experiencing globally we are all experiencing it together i want to encourage you if you're struggling please feel free to message us nico at mysuncast.com join our email list as well at mysuncast.com and find other ways to communicate with us there we've got a whatsapp group we have a slack group and i just want to ask as well That if you have questions or concerns, things that you'd like to, as it were, crowdsource among our community answers for, I'm happy to facilitate that. If you're also thriving, as Etienne and I covered in our LinkedIn Live last week, if you've found ways to deal with this that you'd like to share, reach out to me. I'm actively working on uh, real time right now, some episodes and other resources I hope will help serve your needs, address your questions, and keep us together during this difficult time. So that is what we're up to right now. As many of you know, we're flipping off around episode 241 right now, and every one of these episodes has lots of different resources to share. We house those on a blog page over at mysuncast.com. While you are checking that website out, again, I encourage you to Sign up, uh, give us your email, promise we won't abuse that, and we will keep you up to date on the myriad ways that we are working actively right now as a team to bring you more resources to help you grow your company, your influence, your impact, and stay sane as we deal with this global tumultuous time that we are all part of right now. But for now, get ready as we tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, and drop into another Powerful conversation with Amanda Bybee, part two here on Suncast. 
You've been involved not just with Namaste, but with founding a couple of other well-known, I would say, course directing entities in at least in the in the Colorado area, and certainly examples uh, nation and glo- and worldwide. I want to give you a chance to talk about both of those. Obviously, I want to spend some time on Amicus uh, O and M because it is an it is a, a follow on to what you learned about co- the cooperative movement, so that folks can have an idea of the kind of ways that you show up. Because <laughs> I think it's remarkable, you co-founded the Clean Energy Credit Union, which is a federal credit credit union. Can you give us maybe the the two or three minute version of what that, why that needed to exist, and what it looked like to bring that to life? In 2011, Namaste Solar co-founded Amicus Solar, a purchasing cooperative, to help it compete against the national companies that were coming into it, the the market in Colorado. And Stephen Irvin, my colleague birthed of that concept and has grown Amicus Solar into a Mm -hmm. remarkable community of values-aligned solar installation companies. There are 55 or so of them. They span the United States, Puerto Rico, and Canada. Each of these independent solar companies aggregates their purchases through a central point so that they get better volume-based pricing together than they could ever get individually. Amicus Solar was a tremendous experiment for us in spinning off another type of cooperative out of the employee-owned cooperative. In 2014, five of the members of Amicus Solar got together and said, you know, one of the key long-term pillars of our residential business is access to affordable financing. If we don't have good options to present to our customers, then we will be in trouble. And at the time, there were there were good loan options on the market. This was after the pendulum had sort of started to swing back from third-party ownership back to direct customer ownership. So loans were the product of the day. There were good loans on the market, but they were opaque. You didn't know what was behind the black box. You didn't know why they cost so much <laughs> in dealer fees. And we said to ourselves, what if we started our own loan fund or our own bank to make sure that our businesses have access to the type of financing we need to be able to offer. And as we started researching starting a bank, we we uncovered credit unions, which are financial cooperatives. And we said, oh, well, that's perfect for us. Let's do that. And so we, these five companies got together and I got to be the project manager of that, that effort with the National Credit Union Administration, which is the federal agency that oversees credit unions. And it took us three years to get that application through the charter process. To put that in perspective, um, starting new financial institutions is a very rare event. It's like a panda birth. Everybody gets really excited. The Clean Energy Federal Credit Union, which is its full legal name, it is a federally insured credit union, was only the 17th charter issued since 2010 when it was issued in 2017. It had been over 30 years since a federal credit union had been chartered in the state of Colorado. Further complicating matters was the fact that this is a thematic credit union. It only provides loans for clean energy products and services. It provides loans for a whole suite of them. So you can obviously get a solar loan through clean energy. You can get um, automobile loan, but there's a twist. Your automobile has to be electric or hybrid if you want to get a loan through clean energy credit union. You can't just get a loan for your average Toyota Corolla. If you want to get um, energy efficiency is another 
track of the loans that they offer. So it's really, it's not just solar. It's real, it's offering loans for all sorts of clean energy and it's growing like gangbusters. We, we brought in some credit union professionals to really run the day to day. We've, the board is made up of about half solar people and half credit union people. So we have a good blend of um, subject matter expertise I am still a volunteer on the supervisory committee, which is the internal audit committee for the credit union. And it is growing as fast as we can bring in deposits. So you too can join Clean Energy Credit Union. So it is a national credit union. Anyone can join. In order to join a credit union, you have to first be a part of its stated community. And so there are eight different organizations that currently comprise that community um, that you can find those on the website. So you first join one of those if you're not already a member, and then you can become a member of the credit union. It's an online only financial institution. So we are opting not to invest lots of money in brick and mortar branches, but instead to keep ourselves lean and bake those savings into the rates that we offer our members. And as a member of the credit union, you own a share and you get to exercise your democratic governance by voting for the board of directors. And right now, you know, starting out, we had a limited number of products, savings accounts, CDs, and loans. But by the end of this year, we hope to add checking accounts. We actually already already have IRAs. And uh, we the aim is to be a full services financial institution over time. But you have to, you have to build that out. Um, each of those new products adds a lot of complexity. So we want to make sure we take on things in the right order, but it's a remarkable effort. And the other really exciting part of the credit union to me is as a depositor, I can put money into a savings account or a CD and know that my money is going to support other people getting clean energy. And I can do that as a average, non-accredited, non-sophisticated investor and also know that my money is backed by the federal government. So it's a very low risk way to participate in the clean energy economy, which for people who just have maybe $1,000 or $500 that they want to put into a savings account, you're still putting your money in a place that aligns with your values and that is helping get more clean energy out in the world. 2014, you started this process. And I'll note by way of just observation that Amicus O&M was founded in 2016. So apparently you're a glutton for punishment. (laughs) Tell me how and why uh, you decided that there was a problem with the way O&M was working and and that you needed to be the one to help fix that piece too. What was that about? Yes. So the origin story for Amicus O&M Cooperative, Operations and Maintenance Cooperative, is that Namaste Solar had begun a diligent effort grow its operations and maintenance department in about 2012. That was, in hindsight, probably a little bit premature. The O&M market was still very young at that point, and a lot of companies, a lot of customers weren't thinking about operations and maintenance. God help us, I think we were still selling solar as a maintenance-free technology back then. As it was developing this this product offering and really trying to put resources and, and a plan around that, it, of course, started looking for third-party contracts because just offering O&M on the, the prior installations wasn't going to be enough to feed that effort. So they started talking with clients that were aggregating systems into portfolios. And in about 2015, I think uh, Namaste Solar 
started talking with another Amicus Solar member company, Radiant Solar, out of Atlanta, Georgia. And they were comparing notes on their their efforts and their hurdles in selling third-party O&M contracts. And they were hearing a set of common complaints from the customers that, I love working with you. Y'all are great. You can't manage the rest of my portfolio because you don't have boots on the ground near where all my sites are. Man, is it a pain in my neck that I have to manage regional subcontractors all over the United States where my sites are. And so we said to ourselves, all right, could we apply a cooperative model to operations and maintenance work? And we applied for a grant from the Department of Energy Sunshot Initiative and received funding in the fall of 2016 to help get this effort off the ground. And a huge part of the promise was to bring some level of standardization to the companies that are performing field services so that pricing could settle down. Pricing was all over the board in 2016 so that we could have a more standardized set of tools and templates that each of these companies was bringing to their clients to to cut down on just the, the head noise of trying to decipher a different report from each of the providers. We put together standard legal templates so that everybody was operating from the same level set of terms and conditions. Uh, We started training technicians so that as they actually go out into the field, they are approaching the work in a more consistent fashion and becoming more efficient at it. And our original concept was that the way it would work with clients was that a client would work with a particular member company as their single point of contact for managing a whole national portfolio. And then that, that member company would in turn manage all of the back-end dispatch for other member companies who are closer to the sites to go do the field service work. And then that single point of contact would then aggregate all the reports back into a single package. They would handle all the billing and they would simplify the administration of it on behalf of the client. They would be like the general contractor of the O&M portfolio, but the client would just have a single point of contact to to streamline that whole process. And so uh, as soon as we go to market with that concept, of course, we start meeting clients that are like, no, no, we do that in-house. We just want you to introduce us to the regional providers. That's what we need. We need to know who's going to be good at doing the field service work. And so we said, okay, well, we're, we're, we're ambivalent on that. But in no paradigm has the cooperative ever been a part of the contractual stack to the extent that I do business development. It is really so that I can play matchmaker and pair a customer with the right partner or partners to take care of their systems all over the country. So if I understand right, I just want to make sure I'm clear. You as a cooperative don't actually engage with the client in any way. You, in a lot of ways, kind of like, I'll, I'll make a, a crude um, analogy here, but like the way that Clean Energy Nexus or New Energy Nexus, John Bonanno and Danny are doing for kind of templating and creating a process flow for working in opportunity zones. You guys are doing a similar service for your members to be able to manage O&M better. Is that right? Mm-hmm, that's right. You're not contractually engaged. You right. sit as a back office. Is that is that accurate in some way? In some way, yeah. Um, I really think of my job in three buckets. One bucket is explaining to customers how the cooperative works and helping them get in touch with the right level of partnership from among the member companies. The second role is recruiting and making sure that we have adequate geographic coverage and adequate redundancy in the large markets, make sure we can provide timely and efficient 
coverage. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a big part of this is trying to reduce travel time. As lovely as it would be to have technicians within two hours of every site, I don't think we're quite there uh, as a cooperative or even as an industry to be able to get to sites within that that little narrow window of time. But we're trying to make it more efficient. The third big bucket is in developing and administering the tools that the cooperative member companies use. And these tools are designed to help them be efficient servicing their own customers, you know, whatever O&M portfolio they've developed in their own region, but also as we work together through the network, making sure that everybody is able to access that common set of tools efficiently and, and achieve the standardization that we've promised. So that's my role is, is to play a support role to the member companies and to clients in, in the sense that I'm making the right introductions for them. In the back of my mind, probably others, is how do you make money? The revenue model is really easiest thought of as like a member dues organization. So cooperatives are actually for-profit companies. The majority of the revenue comes in just from member dues and, and member share purchases and things like that. Is this something that, uh, I mean, you've been around for four years. What's the, I'm, I'm curious, two, two things. What's the momentum that you would point to as sort of data that this is working um, from a, a number of members or, or how do you measure that? What metrics are you looking for? And then number two, what underlying data have you been able to provide back to Sunshot that their grant uh, actually you know, made a difference? In terms of what makes me believe that this is successful, I would I would point to membership growth. We added five new member companies last year, and we are on track to add six this year, which is a respectable, you know, 20, 20% growth each year. But it's an interesting process to add a new member company because O&M, as, by nature, is a fairly transactional exchange. Go to my site. Check it out. Hey, something broke. Go fix it. But what we're looking for in member companies are business people who philosophically understand that working in partnership with others will add more to their businesses than it could ever take away. Finding companies that are values aligned with what we're trying to do inside the cooperative can be a little tricky. And and I don't fault people for this at all. But for a lot of conventional business people, when you say, we do a lot of knowledge sharing and best practice sharing. Their reaction is, what? Tell me my special sauce? Like, no way. That's what differentiates me from my competitors. That is the zero-sum mentality, as opposed to what we're trying to foster inside the cooperative, which is that these are not your competitors. They are your partners. And if you can teach them how to do something more efficiently than they're currently doing it, you too will benefit when you deploy them as a subcontractor to go take care of a site and a portfolio that you manage. When they share with you how they do a thing more efficiently than you're doing, your your business will benefit from that as well. I mean, this is a paradigm shifting idea. You know, I can think, uh, of course, folks I won't name, but I can think of business owners who would call it, look at this and say, anathema. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no way. That said, if our goal is focused on something other than personal aggrandization and, and wealth uh, ac- accumulation, if it's focused on Let's prevent our industry capitulating to to political interests from being uh, labeled as this or that that can give us a black eye. We have a big job to do to get to 2050 and be by a dominant uh, margin the largest generation source on the planet. We have to row together. Absolutely. And, you know, for so many years and some would argue still to this day, O&M is an afterthought. 
it isn't adequately baked into the financial projections. Mm. All of our attention for the last 15 years has been on building, building, building as fast as possible. It's been on driving down upfront costs so that we can build more. We need that. We need that as a planet, right? A huge part of my personal motivation is in solar being a tangible solution to the climate crisis. And it is a crisis. So that that sense of urgency absolutely rightly exists in our industry. However, (laughs) being on O&M has really opened my eyes to some of the short-term decisions that are being made along the way that are going to pose challenges for us as an industry that strives for longevity. And I think that we're going through a lot of growing pains in the maturation process right now. But it's if we are going to fulfill the promise of solar and of this beautiful, elegant technology that we promote, we have to take care of it and make sure that it performs as sold into you know the 2025 year timeframe. And you cannot do that without operations and maintenance technicians. They are the unsung white knights of our industry that make future development possible. Because if solar broke and, and, and we didn't fix it, at some point the investment would dry up. O&M is the final leg of the circle that will keep this engine running. Part of my mission in the world right now is to change people's perspective on that. Instead of thinking of O&M as this pain in the neck, overhead financial drain on my assets, we need to understand and honor that O&M is the thing that makes this investment work. These are your most important people because they are protecting your investment. All right, Warriors. So you know that high demand charges can ruin a good commercial solar cell. But what if you could offer your clients 30% in demand charge savings at a tenth? That's right, a tenth the cost of installing a battery. You can now do that with DemandX a new demand charge reduction software from Extensible Energy. Check it out at extensibleenergy.com and read the three case studies on how DemandX significantly reduced demand charges and increased ROI without batteries. As a Suncast listener, you can also get a free demand charge analysis at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. What do you have to lose? Crunch the numbers and see for yourself how Extensible Energy's inexpensive DemandX software is a win-win for you and your commercial solar clients. Hey, Warrior, I bet you're already aware of CPS America's dominance in CNI with over 30% market share. But did you realize that they also shipped 500 megawatts of utility scale 1500 volt inverters in 2019? Their unique design flexibility makes them the only company with the ability to eliminate DC combiners in the field. And their DC to medium voltage balance of system bundle allows for as much as 40% reduction in costs. But wait, there's more. With string inverters increasingly used in utility applications, CPS is infusing smart tech innovations to drive down costs along the value chain from DC generation to AC delivery. If you'd like to find out what other cost stack reduction CPS can bring to your C&I and utility projects, head to mysuncast.com forward slash CPS. Is there a specific data that DOE has asked for and that you've been able to produce uh, over the last four years that, that I'll say isn't as a taxpayer shows that this was a worthwhile investment for us? 
So during the the award period, there's certainly a very uh, closely followed set of expectations of what milestones you have to hit and what deliverables you produce. Post-award, I've kept in touch with folks from the DOE as a way to support ongoing efforts, but I wouldn't say they've actually asked for a lot of follow-on data in the years after. You know, I do think that we've seen, (laughs) not necessarily just thanks to the cooperative, but we have seen pricing settle down quite a lot. I feel like there's less back and forth over scopes of work than there used to be. You know, things feel as though we have settled toward some measure of standardization. I'd love to take credit for that, but I think that would be overstating our influence. Are there other organizations that are adopting the practices you guys are helping proliferate? You know, I could think of Tom Tanzi's organization, SunSpec Alliance. Are there others that have come alongside you and said, hey, we love what you're doing. How can we help? There are a lot of synergies between what we're trying to do. And so we, we try to mutually support each other's efforts. The benefits of the cooperative are probably most acutely felt by the member companies because they're the ones that are benefiting from having this set of tools that they can tap into, you know, and, and I think the, the, (laughs) one of the dirty secrets of O&M is that we're figuring it out as we go. Nobody, not even the big guys have it totally dialed in. Yeah. And Hmm. I, I find that both a little bit reassuring uh, and a little bit concerning. <laughs> We're trying to help people do this work more efficiently so they don't spend as much time on admin and overhead. We want to we want to keep techs in the field doing what they do best. We don't need to have them sitting at computers and follow-up reports. They need to get all that done out in the field. So we're we're trying to provide tools that really keep it straightforward and you know the idea with the legal templates for example is that we can spend less time negotiating T's and C's, you know, right. fewer back and forths and red lines. Uh, no template is perfect. And one of the problems with standards is that there's so many of them. Uh, but it fundamentally for, for a set of companies to adopt a common set of tools means that they each have to let go of whatever it was they were previously using and choose to adopt this new thing, which will never be perfect. And it will never be exactly the way that you would have done it yourself. But that's one of the challenging aspects of shifting human behavior toward a standard is, is that letting go piece has to take place. We do a lot within the cooperative to make sure that when we're building new tools, we do so collaboratively so that people have buy-in. If they feel like they got to help shape it, then they're more likely to adopt it and feel invested in it. You alluded to the idea that there are still some short-term decisions being made in the name of, uh, I'll say, investor returns that have long-term consequences. What do you see right now as these short-term decisions that maybe we want to raise awareness about that could cause problems long-term for us as an industry? I've, I've been working on this whole train of thought around unintended consequences that we are seeing in the industry, many of which are born out of a short-term decision without us taking the time to really think through what the long-term impacts will be. I'll share some of these thoughts with you. I'm always concerned that they come across negatively because, well, frankly, some of these are negative, (laughs) but uh, I I am fundamentally an optimist and I do think there are ways out of this. But, you know, one example is for the first time in my life, there is free-flowing capital in the solar industry. 
there are more people wanting to finance projects and buy existing projects than there has ever been. And that is phenomenal. Unintended consequence of that, though, is that particularly on the asset acquisition side, there is now so much competition for buying operating assets that you can't do due diligence on an underperforming asset and offer a commensurately under market rate, expect to buy that asset. I've heard this from a ton of folks that are out there on the market right now trying to aggregate existing operating assets. There's always somebody coming behind you who's willing to pay full price for an underperforming asset. And that is sending a distorted market signal that you don't have to maintain in your systems. If you plan to hold you know, hold them for just the five or six year period of time while you monetize the ITC, you don't have to do much maintenance because even if it's underperforming, somebody will buy it at face value and you will still meet your, your financial goals. And I think it's, it's a wonderful thing to have all this money in the marketplace, but that is a bad way to move ourselves forward. Assets need to be maintained. Underperforming assets should not earn you full value. Because at some point, someone's going to have to put money into that to repower it or to repair it to get it back up to full value. And my concern is that because of all this money floating around and this rapid fire competition for acquisition, we're not taking the time to really honor that. And that somebody is going to be in for a rude awakening if they aren't fully aware of what it is they're buying and what it's going to take to get it back up to full performance. Does that present a liability or an opportunity? My hope is that when these sales are taking place and people are buying underperforming assets, that they are doing so with their eyes wide open. That's totally fine, you know, and and that's just, you know, basic supply and demand. If if they want to buy underperforming assets at full price, great. And then they're willing to repower them, great. And that all works in their financial model, wonderful. The liability is, of course, if they're unaware or if they feel like they've been sold a bill of goods. And then that sours the attitude of the investment community. That's, that's my, my fear uh, in looking at that trend. But the opportunity is, of course, for, you know, I think that, I think that'll settle down. I, we're, we've been in a bit of a mad rush, you know, a bit of a bubble, perhaps. I believe that that will settle down as we be, become more mature and as people really do start to see the bills for those repowering or repairs that are needed. So, you know, I think that when the market is normalized again, then we'll have the right market signals that value O&M, that apply an appropriate pricing for an underperforming asset, knowing that it will need some work to get back to normal. The next one is we love new technology. Every year, for as long as I can remember, we have seen a new suite of modules. We've seen a new suite of inverters. We've seen microinverters and optimizers. We've seen battery storage systems. We love new technology. New technology has allowed us to increase power density. New technology has allowed us to achieve the financial returns. New technology is great. And we have set ourselves up a lifetime nightmare of trying to source spare parts, repower old systems with modern technology because none of it is compatible. Mm. (laughs) Spare parts is on the agenda of every asset management conference that has ever been and will ever be because there's not a great solution to it. Nobody wants to hold all of this inventory in a warehouse somewhere gathering dust until you need it. 
Nobody knows how to source those spare parts. Very little of what we can are building today is backward compatible. So it's it's going to make for a lifetime of hurt of trying to find legacy parts. This makes me concerned that we will, in the end, decide to just scrap the old stuff and do it all over again. On the one hand, that creates opportunity because, you know, let's say you have a, a, a functioning site, but it's starting to break down and you need to repower it to get it back up to where you want it to be. The economics of the new whiz-bang modules with the greater power density is good enough that you can just take all the old stuff off. Maybe that gives us the inventory that we need to go then repair another site that used that same module. So maybe that is actually going to be the thing that creates enough inventory of legacy parts that we can then go repair a lot of these other sites. My concern, though, is that we will not apply the full, this, the still functioning equipment to old sites and that we will, in fact, just landfill it. This speaks to a, a, a broader need in our industry for responsible disposal methods and recycling methods that we are, as an industry, completely unprepared to handle. One of the ways we've achieved these remarkable price decreases in all of our equipment has been in taking a lot of material out of them. So you look at modules today. Modules today, compared to 10 or 20 years ago, the frames are thinner, the glass is thinner, the cells are thinner, the back sheets are thinner, although that's not as big a deal. But you look at this, and I'm not a product engineer, but I think to myself, you're you're putting a module that is just all around more fragile out into the elements. A stiff breeze is going to cause micro fractures in this thing. Like, how is that? How, what does that bode for the longevity of the product in the field? If the products that we're putting out today, you know, you look at fifty percent of the installed capacity in the U.S. has been installed in just the last five years. You know. So we've got a whole lot of this thinner product out in the field that we, we don't know how it's going to hold up over time, really. I mean, they do the, the accelerated testing in the lab, but I don't think that it's still going to really tell us how this is going to bode in the field after it's been shipped and installed and subject to all the weather. And so if in our, in our race to decrease upfront costs and our race to build as fast as we can, we're losing sight of the lifetime that these objects are supposed to have, that we're going to accelerate the need for disposal and recycling, which we have not invested in and which it is really hard to make money at. And that that horizon, the time horizon, when we're going to need those services is not 20 years from now. It is 10 years from now, or Mm. maybe even five years from now. And that is of great concern to me because for an industry built on an environmental ethos, it is absolutely unacceptable to think that we're just going to send these things to the landfill. Mm-hmm. And it makes me really hot under the collar to think about that. But I'm also going to tell you that's what's happening today. And many, many in our industry don't, don't realize that's what's happening and, and that our landfills are unprepared to receive this uh, material. And, uh, and there should, and is there, there should be, and there is uh, a better way. And, uh, and we as an industry have talked out of both sides of our mouth. In fact, those savvy listeners who do keep up with, or try to keep up with every episode will recognize that we're touching on a topic uh, that was just recently featured. And we talked about it at the podcast lounge uh, in, in Salt Lake with Evelyn Butler and Garvin Heath, um, who I know you're friends with and who are well, well versed on the whole um, sort of the end of life 
life cycle, the opportunity of recycling, et cetera. Uh, I feel like we could probably do an additional long episode with you. Uh, and it's a passionate, uh, passionate subject for many folks in our industry right now. You know, this is, uh, I hear what you're saying. The, the cost out of the bomb in our industry seeking to regain margins, which themselves help our companies be viable is creating a long-term unknown. Well, I won't call it a liability, but a long-term unknown that feeds back. I would argue that it is an unfunded liability and that somebody at some point in time is going to realize that there are costs to end of life that were never factored into their performance. That, you know, I, I, there are some customers out there who require decommissioning plans and, and recycling plans. And hopefully that will become the norm because the, like I said, I, I really chalk this up to maturation, right? It's, it takes time for us to really think it all through. The reality will land someday and someone will be left holding a bag and have to pay for decommissioning. And the idea that they're going to make money on recycling their modules is an urban myth. That is not the case. <laughs> That's a really good point. I think that what you're pointing out is actually something that, that many folks in the industry maybe don't, don't have a grasp of. Like if we're speaking to, I presume we're speaking to at least one or two project owners who tune in to Suncast who may be unaware that they need to put these structures in place. What are one or two mechanisms that you, through the cooperative or just uh, as, a, as a public service announcement, might recommend that they consider including in the contractual obligation of the developer who's selling the asset? I would say that a responsible decommissioning plan needs to account for what you're going to do with all of your components. So there's the labor to remove all of the components from the field. There's what are you going to do with pallets and pallets of old modules? Are the modules still functioning? Somebody has to test them to figure that out. Are the modules end of life and need to be recycled? Where are your recycling facilities? There's racking is usually pretty easy to recycle and you might actually be able to get some, some money for that since it's just a well-known metal recycling effort. What are you going to do with your inverters? <laughs> my, my answer to the inverters is hang on to them for spare parts. But, um, that's going to depend on what their portfolio in includes. And then you have to think about returning the ground to its original state. And so, you know, clients like municipalities and universities and, you know, some of the institutional type uh, off takers do require this kind of thinking and planning. I would really encourage people to look into this. Now, the optimist in me says you put a problem in front of a group of very smart people, they will find a way to solve it. And so I do absolutely believe that we will solve this problem. I do not believe we have 20 years to figure it out. We need to be applying real brain power and resources to this today so that we are ready for it when the bubble starts breaking. What are some lessons or takeaways for you from the important mentors in your life or career? You mentioned Smitty. Might there be others? What, what sort of one-liners maybe or things that have just stuck with you and that you've passed on to your team uh, that you consider as a mentorship opportunity? Yeah. Uh, Smitty has definitely had a huge impact on me. Blake Jones, my my longtime partner, has always been an unwitting mentor. He He would never describe himself that way or doubtful he would ever seek out a role like that. But just watching him and his perseverance has been incredibly impactful to me. Stephen Irvin, who runs my sister cooperative, Amicus Solar, he has curated such a remarkable community. I really think of him as a community builder. But then there are also some really important women in my life. A longtime Namaste Solar co-owner, Terry Lima, 
and and Maria Kingery, Southern Energy Management, they have shown me what it looks like to lead with your heart and to not be afraid to infuse love into your business, which is such a foreign idea to a lot of hardcore business people. When you show up with love and you see your business as a way to take care of people and take care of the earth, it changes your whole MO. It changes your whole way of being. When you find yourself motivated by love and you're not afraid to say, I love you, the folks around you, it changes your connection to them. It changes your your drive. It changes your decision-making because you realize, sort of hearkening back to the, the very first part of our conversation, success is not purely financial. We are not put on this earth to make a lot of money. We are put on this earth to love each other and to, to be to become the best human beings we can be. And so Terry and Maria and Tara Doyle and Katie Janik and the other women in my life have helped me learn that and learn that talking about love or finding what some might call a feminine voice, that is not weakness. That is not a lesser form of leadership. If anything, it is a greater form of leadership because it calls upon us to be vulnerable and to admit our human failings and to admit that there are times where we don't know all the answers, but that together we're going to figure out the best way forward. And, you know, I, I've really come to cherish these relationships and, and to look for it in, in the new relationships that I'm making. I heard a quote the other day that, that really stuck with me that I, I love. The larger the island of your knowledge grows, so does the shoreline of your ignorance. And it took me a minute to let that sink in. And I love that idea because we are, I am a perpetual student. I'm a student of humanity. I'm a student of technology, and of business, of science, of all these, this richness in our world. And there's so much more to always know. How could I possibly have the answer to everything? You know, it is really only through collaboration that we're going to arrive at the best solutions. And that's very much what the cooperative is about, what the cooperative business model is about, and why I'm so drawn to it is that nobody expects me to be the only one that knows the answer. And I don't think that leadership is just about knowing the answer, but really it's about tapping into your the collective around you and honoring the intelligence that others have that you don't. I just cried. <laughs> <laughs> and I can categorically say that that's the first thing that's ever happened in 250 interviews. Wow. Um, yeah. Call me Barbara Walters. Yeah. I mean, I think that you just made uh, one of the most profound monologues of Suncast history. Um, I'm going to stop there. Like, I, I can, <laughs> there's, there's nothing I can add to what just happened. If you're listening to this and, and you're uh, equally moved, I would encourage you to reach out to Amanda and thank her for uh, the opportunity to learn from someone who's been in the trenches. It's what Suncast was created for. Yeah, I mean, I genuinely say from the heart to you right now, namaste. Namaste. All right, all right, Solar Warriors. I am still just so pumped about the conversation that uh, we just witnessed with Amanda. What an inspiring lady. Uh, what a force she has been. And I just love the vulnerability uh, that she was willing to share about how she's gone through struggles, how she has endured 
the growth curve of multiple companies, and the insight into ways that you can now adopt her viewpoints, her, her lens into your own career. That's what this is all about. Uh, if you're eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this discussion, along with all the other 240 discussions, social media links, book recommendations, and more over at mysuncast.com. And hey, while you're there, I would love it if you would take a moment, instead of hitting X on that pop-up that asks for your email, if you just drop your email to me, I promise to respect your time and your attention by sending you only uh, information around how we as a community can help you more. I'd like to have that level of communication with you, and so I'd ask that you would engage thus. Next week, we are going to be dropping back into our regularly scheduled interviews. You might hear a male voice for the first time in over a month here on Suncast. Well, that's not mine, that is. And uh, we're also going to be hosting a roundtable discussion. If you are on the email list and you probably already got notified of that, and it occurred to me that I didn't announce it last Tuesday in the previous episode. So Tara Doyle, Kristen Graff from Rise, and a few others are going to be joining me to talk about empowering women, not just in the workplace, but on the stage in the presence, in the, in the forums uh, that we call trade shows. <laughs> now, trade shows are uh, something that has been canceled rampantly lately uh, in light of our current predicament. So we are also going to be talking about where and how you can be engaging with others in leadership positions uh, in lieu of these trade shows. Are there certain virtual ways that we can communicate. I don't know about you guys, but I love meeting each one of you in person and I look for these trade shows as a way to stay together, stay connected. And so I just want to encourage you that if you also had several days uh, in March, April, May set aside for some of the regional events, reach out, let us know what it is that you're looking for, how we can help support you there and uh, know that we're doing our best with other uh, friends and partners in the industry to find other ways to serve you and to to give you a sense of community while uh, while you're at home. So stay tuned with that and uh, jump on our mailing list so that I can let you know the details for how you can register for the forthcoming roundtable live interactive uh, session that we're going to host with Tara Doyle, Kristen Graff, and a few others that will be happening more than likely next week. Although as a recording of this episode, the date wasn't locked down because things just keep getting canceled. <laughs> so bear with us there. Keep an eye out on LinkedIn and your email. And I look forward to hearing and seeing you as well when we do these virtual forums. Remember, you are what you listen to. And I thank you again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It is half the battle.